Hey, my name is Brian Hayden, and I make a podcast called Finding Your Venture for a class I teach at the University of Michigan. The students in our class come from all over the world, but I don't know of a single international student who has started a company and pursued it full-time in the U.S. after school. So what's stopping them? Well, the law. Immigration law makes it illegal for non-citizens to earn money in the U.S. except in narrowly defined scenarios. So this is the second in a two-episode series for international student founders. In the first episode, we met Deepti Pandey, a talented and passionate international student entrepreneur trying to launch a business. And for this episode, I asked around to find the best immigration and employment lawyer in the state. And I think we got him. I'm Mike Nolan. I'm with the law firm Clark Hill in Detroit, Michigan. I joined Clark Hill in 2005, and I've been doing immigration ever since. I don't speak any foreign languages, and I don't do any of the other things that you would think lawyers do. So I don't go to court. That's mostly immigration court or federal court. We have partners who do that. I don't do it. My practice is almost exclusively on filing applications with immigration in the U.S., helping people get visas abroad, helping people process applications at the border. And then there's also some compliance around for employers around making sure their people are work authorized. There's a ton of compliance there and another piece is E-Verify. So those are all things that are kind of day-to-day meat and potato work for me. I asked Mike to walk through the basics of the laws impacting international students who want to start a business. I'm going to level with you. For a lot of you, this is going to be pretty dry. But if you're in this situation or you care about somebody in this situation, get out your notebook and get ready. This is going to be a long answer, Brian, and and I don't mean it to be long. I mean it to be informative. The U.S. does not do a good job of helping foreign nationals who are entrepreneurs. So what do I mean by that? And, And why hasn't more been done? So President Obama, when he was in power, the agency acknowledged that they, and this wasn't President Obama necessarily, he is a big fan of immigration and entrepreneurism. He feels that those two fit. And he actually had a few speeches on it. And he's right. I don't remember the statistics, Brian, but they're all over the place that say that foreign nationals are far more entrepreneurial than U.S.-born citizens. I don't know the reason for it. It's just the numbers show it. And our, some of our most successful companies are created by entrepreneurs who are foreign-born. And a huge population in our schools are foreign-born, especially grad school. So we have a very entrepreneurial group that's coming to the U.S. Immigration in the U.S. tried to understand more about entrepreneurs. They made some good progress there. The Trump administration, regardless as to how anybody feels politically, if you're an immigration lawyer, these were a hard couple of four years. I can't say any of the work was taken away because they had some entrepreneurs show up at immigration and actually teach the officers and explain to them how things worked. But there was no new law. There were no new regulations. So let's talk about most foreign national students. Most foreign national students are here on an F-1 visa. And when they graduate, they're eligible for one year of optional practical training or OPT. OPT has very few strings attached to it. You can work for just about anyone and you can be self-employed. You should be employed in a field in which you graduated. So you shouldn't have a, a degree in human resources and then go start an IT company. Those aren't related unless the IT is tied to HR. But in general, 
it is, it's a very flexible visa. It gives the student the ability to go out and, and kind of start their own business if they want to. What happens then if they graduate in a STEM field is that the student can also apply for a two-year extension of the OPT called STEM OPT. So it's one year of OPT when they graduate, and then they can apply for two years in STEM OPT. STEM OPT was created by President George W. Bush. It was attacked in court for not being lawful. The court agreed. The Obama administration said, we better fix this. And so they scrambled to fix the STEM OPT rules. And as part of that, they made it much more restrictive. So now you may have a very loose OPT position, but when you move to STEM, there are certain requirements that have to be met. These are, you cannot have your own company. You have to have a sponsor. That sponsor needs to have someone who's working on site, who's going to supervise you and do periodic reviews. You cannot work less than, than 20 hours a week. You can't have multiple employers. So an OPT student could have five employers. You move to STEM OPT, you only get one. And they've got to report certain changes, like changes in the employer, changes in job duties, certain things require an amendment. It's still a good deal, but it's far more restrictive than we had hoped for. But it saved a program that was about to die, and it went from 18 months to two years. So there were other benefits that came from that. So then the students spent three years on OPT, and they're wondering what to do next. So there's only a handful of work visas available in the U.S. They all have letters based on where they show up in the immigration code. And I want to say roughly, there's roughly 20, 23 work classifications, all kinds of different categories. But it's pretty limiting. Uh, And what do I mean by that? I mean that there really isn't a category for someone to be an entrepreneur unless they can meet certain requirements and that's called an e-visa. Most people have to go through an H-1B process. So I want to talk about H-1Bs and I'll jump back to E's. H-1Bs are for people whose job requires a bachelor's degree that they're doing and that they have a degree in a related field. So a good example of an H-1B in Metro Detroit is a mechanical engineering company, automotive, that hires a mechanical engineer to do a mechanical engineering job. That is a, a straightforward H-1B application. When, but there are other categories where immigration is pretty aggressive in the H-1B space. Marketing, they're aggressive. There's a couple others that they just, they don't like them and they, they pick fights by issuing requests for evidence and issuing denials. But at the heart of an H-1B is the inability to self-sponsor. So there was a memo that was issued in 2010 that said two things. Staffing companies shouldn't be able to do H-1Bs and that individuals can't have their own company, they need to be fired. They have to have a position where they can get fired. Now think about that as an entrepreneur. Why would you set up a company where you have a board of people? It's all your idea. You get third parties to sit on the board and they can fire you. Uh, You may keep your ownership interest in the company, but now you're not running your company. This is your baby. This is your child. So it was a stupid role, to be frank. And litigation challenged it last year mostly because of the the staffing company side. But the memo had two pieces. It was staffing and entrepreneurs. Anecdotally, I'm hearing that entrepreneurs are doing a little bit better on these self-sponsored H&Bs, but we're only talking about June 2020 till today. And President Trump's administration 
stopped the ability for immigration attorneys to ask questions of the agency. So my whole career, we could always have a liaison with different agencies. We learned a lot of stuff and we'd raise issues to them. Hey, did you know you're doing this? And they go, no, we didn't know that we were doing that. So a lot of questions that we have, we can't ask anyone. There's no way to find out. I'm hearing anecdotally that some people are having success, plus the COVID pandemic, right? There's a lot going on. So that is in a little bit of, of play. I would expect immigration to still be a little aggressive on people who are entrepreneurs owning a company who don't have the ability to be fired. But having said that, I don't have a lot that I can point to, specific cases or anything else. So H-1Bs need a sponsor, and you've got to be in a job where you can be fired. So that sounds like kind of a hurdle, but there's a bigger hurdle. And that is we don't have enough H-1Bs. We have 65,000 for everybody. And then there's 20,000 for those who have a U.S. master's degree or higher. In other words, issued by a U.S. university. Those 85,000, everybody competes with them. Ford, GM, Intel, everybody's competing for 85,000 visas. So there's a lottery that takes place. There's an electronic registration that's filed the first couple weeks of March, and then that closes, and then they do a random lottery, and then starting in April, we can start filing applications. The H-1B doesn't start until October 1st. So we start six months before the visa can begin, actually a little bit more. This year was the heaviest H-1B season any of us think we can remember. Acceptance rates were down. So two years ago, I want to say the number of cases filed chasing 85,000 visas was around 270,000. Last year felt kind of the same. I don't remember if the agency gave us a report. This year, they didn't give us any numbers yet, but they were high. Uh, it feels like the number of applications filed were high because the acceptance rates for all of us were low. For example, one of our clients filed 50 registrations. They had 10% accepted. That's really low. We haven't seen that before. I've thought H&B demand would be down this year, but a lot of H&Bs can work from home, right? If they're in IT, IT tends to be the largest area where people are sponsored. It was still a, a busy year. So why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because the other thing that entrepreneurs face is this lottery. So they set up a company that's perfect. They've got someone, a good friend of theirs, who's, who has the ability to fire them, who, who's not going to fire them. And they've got all this set up. And then they just never make the lottery. We had one client this year. It was her fourth or fifth time. She finally made it. Let me pause right there and say that if you're in this position where you're thinking about this a lot, we're gonna go deeper. We're gonna talk next about other kinds of visas and other ideas for finding a way to stick around and build your company. But if this isn't something that you're really passionate about or excited about and it's not really impacting you, it's only getting deeper. So I wanna give you an off-ramp right here. Come back and, and listen to the next episode. This, the rest of this is gonna just be even wonkier than that last part was. Okay. So if you're sticking around, let's do this. Let's go into some more kinds of visas that could work for entrepreneurs. There is another visa called uh, a TN visa. This is only for citizens of Mexico and Canada. They also cannot be owners. They can be consultants if they're truly consulting. So Mike Nolan comes to U of M and Mike Nolan advises U of M on something. And that's okay to do as a TN. But I can't come in and have my own company and, and, and be in charge of my own company. So that limits TNs. 
The other one is there's an, an H1B1 that's only for citizens of Chile and Singapore that pretty much tracks with the H1B rules. There is an E3 for people who are professionals. That doesn't have many rules around it at all. It's very similar to an H1B. It's only for Australians. And uh, they may be able to be owners. Immigration would probably be okay with that. And then the last one is an e-visa. E-visas are for people who are going to have substantial trade between their home country and the U.S. So I'm a German national. I'm going to import German widgets to the U.S. As long as the trade is ongoing, I may qualify for an E-1 visa. And then the other one is an E-2 visa. E-2s are for substantial investment. So I invest a lot of money and that may qualify me for an E-2 visa. I love E-visas. They're great. And owners can qualify for E's. So why aren't our Chinese, Indian, Brazilian students running out and getting E's? Because we have to have the right treaties in place to qualify for an E. And we don't have any with the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. I think that's the BRIC. And so we could fix a lot if we set those treaties in place. Treaties are hard to pass, right? We saw it with the climate change treaty. They just don't happen overnight. I would love to see more treaties. I think that would be a, a phenomenal thing for the US. But, but investors can be a little hampered by ease when they go out and get seed money and they pick up more investors. They have to remain at least a 50% owner of the company. So the example I give is Chrysler. When Chrysler was owned by Germans, Germans got ease. When Chrysler was bought by the Italians, the Germans all lost their ease and now Italians get ease. So you've, you've got to match the citizenship of the country. So it's got its own quirky little rules. But ease can be good for entrepreneurs. Again, they may not be importing a whole lot, right? If you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're trying to do something new. Maybe it's importing German widgets, but it may not be. But the other thing that could be done is investment. Again, if, if it's a small program, you probably don't need to invest a whole lot of money. So we have to be creative in terms of how we find investment. Do we prepay a lease for an office that you really don't need, but allows us to say that you've created investment, right? You've spent money in the US. So there's, there's ways that we try and get creative with e-visas. So that's the temporary space. There really aren't a whole lot of visas beyond that. Everything starts to really dry up after the ones I've listed. There's one more. For O1s, for people of extraordinary ability, it helps if you have gray hair like me. So people who are young just usually haven't ticked enough boxes to be extraordinary. The test starts off with, have you won a Nobel Prize or something like a Nobel Prize? And if not, maybe you've met some other criteria. I know they give the Nobel Prizes away. They haven't given me one, Brian. I don't know if you've received one, but it's kind of a hard thing to get. <laughs> so anyway, so that's the non-immigrant space. So then we talk about, well, look, I don't want a temporary visa. I want to stay. Let's go for a green card, right? I can't go directly to citizenship. I've got to have a green card first. Let's go for a green card. Green cards, you cannot sponsor yourself unless you are, again, of extraordinary ability or your work will benefit the U.S. national interest. Benefiting the U.S. national interest is a pretty hard thing to prove. You have to show that your work is, and there's, there's a test that was changed in 2017. But the short answer is, it's got to be more than I'm going to save people money through my coupon app, right? That's not really in the U.S. national interest. So at a high level, you think air quality, water quality, right? Healthcare, those are the easy ones. 
So there is the ability to sponsor if your work's in the U.S. national interest, but it's a pretty high test, uh, a high standard to meet. Extraordinary ability has become absolutely brutal. The O-1s are easier to get than the green cards. The agency, there's a lot of demand for it, and so that can be tough. And then most people go through the green card process by running ads and going through what's called a labor certification. It's called PERM labor certification. In the PERM process, requires you to run ads and prove there are no minimally qualified U.S. workers who can do the job. Say, Mike, this is great. I created this app, right? I'm the only one who knows how this app works. I'm, I'm in. Yeah, but you, the job has to be open to a U.S. worker. And so if you're the owner, the job isn't open to a U.S. worker. There's lots of cases on it. And the Department of Labor says, you're not going to fire yourself and hire this U.S. worker. The job is not open. And the Department of Labor asks additional questions. Hey, are you related to the owner? If you're the nephew, the job probably isn't open. Or what percentage do you own? I've had a couple uh, cases on that. Five, 10% ownership isn't as bad as 50% ownership, which is what you need for the E. So we don't have a great process for entrepreneurs. We were really hoping that the Obama administration was going to say, look, entrepreneurs are in the U.S. national interest to really open this door. And they didn't. And, and it was probably because people within the agency said, we don't have the power to do that. And if we've seen anything within the Trump administration, it's that everybody sues about everything all the time. We are far more litigious in immigration law than we've ever been. So anytime an administration wants to open something up, they're going to get sued, as well as anytime they plan to restrict something. So I can't say the Obama administration was wrong. I just would have liked additional changes. So again, Congress could fix this. The Biden administration has proposed what we call a marker bill, something for people to talk about. And that was launched in the first 100 days of his administration. It will not come up for a vote in 2021. I don't know that. I haven't talked to President Biden about it. But and he, for some reason, they're not giving out his phone number, Brian. We believe it's more of a 2022 issue and that Congress is going to look at his marker bill and they're going to start playing with it. If there is anything that gets passed, it'll get passed before the midterms. So at the end of 2022, we have another election and the Democrats could lose either the House or the Senate. That's usually what happens in midterm elections. It happened to Obama. It happened to um, Clinton. It happened to Trump. It happened to Bush. So there's a pattern now. And so if they don't get it done before the midterms, it may not happen during Biden's first four years, assuming he gets more. And again, it's just complicated. It's just hard. It's a dysfunctional system, but the dysfunctional system right now is one that is, at least for an immigration attorney, fairly predictable, fairly repeatable. All right. I've got just a few more questions for Mike, starting with what does all this cost? These are usually under $10,000 for the first one. They're often good for five years, not always, but often. H-1Bs, the employer has to pay. That's about five to six grand. TNs are much less expensive, maybe two to 3,000. This assumes you've got counsel. Two to 3,000 maybe for TNs, around the same maybe for E3s and H-1B1s and, and others. So not a ton of money to get the first one. The green card process is a longer answer. For most people who are sponsored by an employer, under 20 grand is a good budget number. But let me, let me jump over to green cards for just a minute because I, I, I did not mention something that's important. 
when you apply for a green card, even if you qualify, sometimes there is a wait. So just like I said, there aren't enough H-1Bs, there aren't enough employment-based green cards. So the U.S., instead of having a lottery to, say, to see who gets one, we have a line that you wait in. And the line is determined by a number of factors. But the short answer is that the line, if you're born in China, it's at least three years long. And if you're born in India, it's around 10 years long. These are rough numbers. This is just kind of back of the envelope calculations. So I can't get a green card in my one-year OPT or three-year, including my STEM OPT, if I'm from India or China. I have to find something else to let me stay, even if I'm extraordinary and I do all the great stuff and I want to get a green card right away. So the short answer is that green cards are a longer investment, not just in terms of money, but time and much more complex. And sometimes there's starts and stops. So the funding to me, while it may be important to your students, I feel that everything about immigration is unique in that, Brian, you and I have the exact same or many of the same worries, right? Am I making enough money? Do I like my house? Do I like my job? Do I like my girlfriend, my family, right? All those things, my car, all these things I got to think through. But if you're a foreign national here, you've got at the very keystone, at the very apex is, am I allowed to stay? right? Everything else that I'm doing. So do I get a dog in the U.S., right? Everybody talks about getting COVID dogs. You're like, well, am I going to be allowed to stay? How long am I going to be able to have this dog, right? What should I do with my apartment? Well, how long am I going to be allowed to stay? Everything that you and I have, they've got that extra thing to try and think through, which is, which is challenging. Okay. Mike said that you're allowed to start a business, but you're not allowed to get paid by that business that you've started. So what about raising money. Can I go out and fundraise for my startup and not take a salary? To the extent that you're not receiving any income, I don't see anything wrong with you finding investors. The, the problem is going to be that investors want something to happen. And so the investors aren't going to say, hey, here's a million dollars, Brian, take your time, think about it, and let me know when you come up with a good idea. Everybody's going to want it to hurry up and do something, right? Fail or succeed. So I'm okay with it I, on, a, on a pure legal basis. I think from a practical perspective, it's not all that helpful because I don't think it's really going to do much. I, I think proving the concept is good. It's okay to do any patents. Nothing wrong with patenting uh, uh, technology or ideas or widgets or whatever else, right? That's okay. Or trademarks or copyright. All those things you can do, even if you're not selling them, you can still protect your intellectual property. Okay. I feel like that's encouraging. So what about corporate structure? Does it matter what type of entity I form? Any C-corp is probably okay. But again, it would be nice if it was bigger. So a closely held C-corp, I probably don't like as much. I've been told that there's something about foreign nationals and S-corps that I've not been able to fully understand, even outside of that. Immigration doesn't care so much about the company structure. It's how are you receiving income and are you working to receive that income? So closely held C-Corps, I don't like as much as publicly traded stock because it's, it's the same problem as an LLC. Well, that's a scenario that's going to be really hard to achieve for most startup founders. I mean, having a big C-Corp where you've raised a bunch of money and it's got some scale to it. 
But if you're able to achieve that exit velocity, it sounds like there's a pathway there too. Okay, next question. What happens if your status is uncertain, but you want to start the business to kind of save time? Is there any risk in forming the entity when you're not sure about your status? Yeah, that's what's crazy. So U.S. corporate law and state law allows people to open businesses even if they don't have status. You could be sitting in the middle of nowhere and you could still open a business. You could create it. I don't know exactly how it's done, but you can secure a U.S. tax ID number. You may not qualify for a U.S. bank account if you're not in the U.S. because that that was a a post 9-11 issue, right? Money laundering and everything else. But there's a lot you can do to set up a company and never be in the U.S. So, So could you do that? Yes. How about if I find a job in the U.S. that allows me to stay and I want to start an LLC or a C Corp and work there part time to kind of move the business forward as a side hustle? The answer is yes. Can I work for my LLC while I'm working for this employer in terms of developing my technology? Yeah, it's a hobby. You're allowed to develop technology on the side, right? You can build a better mousetrap sitting at home on your nights and weekends. Can I sell anything from this LLC or profit from it? No, that's a violation of status. So you can keep the LLC as kind of a, a something in your back pocket. You can develop the technology and prove the concept, but you can't do anything to actually gain money until you're in a better status, unless you go really fast on the OPT. But for STEM OPT, it's not allowed. And H&Bs, it's not allowed. They're, they're not your sponsor. You're working for somebody else. Okay. What about a scenario where I've started the business in the US, I go back home and I run it remotely? You do not have to be in the US to have a company. But if you travel to the US, let's say you've hired people, right? So again, Mike Nolan finishes school, he starts his LLC, he goes back to his home country and he wants to come in, he's hired people, he's got payroll, everything's going great. He wants to come in and meet his team. He owns a company. US Customs and Border Protection will probably not let Mike Nolan in. Why? He's coming in, he owns a company. This is what's paying his money. That's essentially work. This business is his. I also don't like people to be passive investors in an LLC in the US. You say, hey, my friend's got a really good idea. I want to be an investor in his LLC. I'm not going to work. It's totally passive investment. My answer is no one's going to believe you. That it should really be, you should not invest in small startups and collect income from it it's going to be assumed that you're probably working and it'll be hard to prove the negative. You can do investment. So you can invest in Ford and GM stocks, right? Or Apple stocks or whatever. Why? You're passive. You're one of billions who own the stock. Can I day trade? Not a good idea. A little bit of day trading, buying and selling stock is okay. If it's becoming a job, right? All I do all day is day trade. Now it's work. Sorry, Brian. The last comment I'll say is this. What is work in the U.S. is complicated. We only define what's okay to do as a visitor. Everything else is assumed to be work. So the, the, the catch-all is it's probably work. I want to say a huge thank you to Mike Nolan from Clark Hill. This is an incredibly complex topic. There's no way we were going to answer every question, but I'm going to put a link to Clark Hill's website. And if you're interested in getting in touch with Mike as either a client or just to read a little bit more about what he does, you can find a link there at findingyourventure.com. Because Mike has been so helpful, we're going to give him a little bit of space to editorialize and give us a little bit of parting advice. 
I have one suggested question, Brian, if you're out of questions. And that would be, so Mike, you're an old guy. You're an immigration lawyer. You've been doing this for a while. I'm a student. I'm entrepreneurial, but I also want to make sure I keep my options open in terms of staying. What should I do? My answer is find an employer and go through the sponsorship process. And when, it, when they agree to, try the green card process. Why am I saying that? Why am I sucking all the air out of this entrepreneur class and saying, go work for the man? And the reason I'm saying that is because our immigration system, for the most part, except for ease, requires a sponsor. And it requires an arm's length transaction between the sponsor and you. Yeah, we talked about some exceptions with your friends who can, who, who can fire you, but it's hard to do those. And H&Bs require a set payment, so it requires finding money, and you've got to go through the lottery, right? So at a high level, things are less complicated if you can start working for a company, have them sponsor you for an H, whatever the related visa is, get that under your belt, get some good experience. There's lots of things, and again, this is gonna sound like, a, like I'm everybody's dad, and I apologize, but there's a lot of things that you can learn from other companies that you don't have to think through as an entrepreneur, right? You just learn certain things on how they do things. It helps us to become better entrepreneurs. And I just want to pair Mike's parting advice with a little bit of parting advice from Deep Tea. We heard from her in the first episode of this two-episode series. So let's hear kind of some parting thoughts from her. I would just say never stop dreaming because everybody would have hurdles if it's an international student or whatever, whatever race, gender, whatever sexuality you have, whatever you think is prohibiting you it's probably not, okay? It might seem like it is. You might feel like an outlier, but more often than not, it's in your head and there are workarounds. You just have to find out what the workaround is. Find really hard a person who has done it before, people who will be your champions and who resonate with your idea, with your problem. And some problems are solvable. So just explore a bit more before you throw out that idea based on the logistics of it. Finding Your Venture is funded in part by the University of Michigan Center for Academic Innovation. Each episode of the podcast pairs a story with a lesson from class. You can find a couple dozen other episodes at findingyourventure.com. Thanks for listening. 